Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Serve on the rocks. This week, we talked to Dr. Jeremy Adler. Dr. Adler is the director of the Pediatric IBD Program at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital at the University of Michigan. We talked to him about J-POP surgery for kids and how to make that decision for your child. We talked to him about medications used for treating children with inflammatory bowel disease. We talked to him about his research into health disparities in IBD and the COVID vaccine. And we talked to him about why he chose to go back to school to become a pediatric gastroenterologist after practicing as a pediatrician for many years. And sorry, everyone, for the audio quality. It's a little bit poor this week. I've learned not to record in the airport anymore and to rely on their internet. I promise to do better next time. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moment. This is Robin. Hey guys, this is Alicia, and we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Adler. Dr. Adler, you are the director of the Pediatric IBD Program at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital at the University of Michigan, and we're really excited to talk to you because we started a conversation with Dr. Sabina Ali, and she said, we really need to talk to you. So delighted to have you on, but we started by asking you the very unacademic question of what are you drinking? I'm drinking coffee right now. It doesn't matter that it's three in the afternoon in Michigan. Uh, I'm drinking some nice coffee. Excellent. A caffeine boost in the afternoon is, is never a bad thing necessarily. I think that's why the British have tea time, right? You know, to have that like little afternoon boost. Robin, what are you drinking? I am also drinking coffee. I also don't care that it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And I am sitting in an airport. So pardon the background noise, everybody. So I'm actually drinking nothing, not a thing. So sad, sad for me. But anyway, Dr. Adler, we are, again, so excited to have you on the show. Next question for you is, how did you get involved in inflammatory bowel disease? Why pediatric gastroenterology for you? Well, I had a kind of unusual course, I guess, towards becoming a gastroenterologist. I first trained in general pediatrics, as all pediatric gastroenterologists do. But I first actually worked as an academic pediatrician in New York for a number of years. This is actually a second career for me. I was a pediatrician for a long time and eventually decided I needed a change. I went back to school, went back to training and did my fellowship, moved to Michigan to do that training, and then I've stayed here ever since. And it was a good change. What prompted the career change, though? Well, probably a few things. But one is I really believed in primary care. I really believed in the idea of preventive care. I like continuity, getting to know families, getting to know people over time. But I sort of missed being involved in helping kids get better when they have uh, serious problems. I would send them to the subspecialist to evaluate whatever it was that they had. And then I get a letter back telling me what was going on. And I wanted to be that subspecialist. So eventually I decided it was it was worthwhile going back and doing more training. And, and it was a great decision. Um, now I am one of those subspecialists and I still have the continuity of getting to know families over time. But I also am the one who's involved in helping the kids get better, which really is rewarding. Was there another specialty in the running besides gastroenterology or did you go straight to gastroenterology? There were many specialties in the running. Uh, Since I had been in practice for a long time, I had friends in different specialties and I actually went to hang out with each of them in their clinic to see what they did. I thought I wanted to do a lot of things. I sort of liked hands-on procedures and stuff. So, you know, GI, rheumatology, cardiology were some of the ones that percolated to the top of the list. But, you know, GI always seemed to resonate with me. 
And I, I already had patients who I shared with it, and lots of patients, but I, I already felt like a, a more of a connection to GI. So it was an easy change. I'm curious. So if since your background was in preventative medicine and, and general pediatrics, is that what prompted you to be interested in the COVID vaccine for kids with IBD? So I think that is related to lots of my interests. I, I really do believe in prevention. I think the COVID vaccine was an amazing innovation that the medical world was able to pull together at such a, a speed faster than ever before. So I, I believe in that. I believe in vaccines and prevention more broadly. But but a lot of my research and, and a lot of my patient care, I really focus on trying to prevent disease-related complications, treatment-related complications, because I think that's actually the pathway to having the best long-term outcomes. And maybe being a pediatrician helped to inform that a little I'm curious what you saw in that study, since I glanced at it, I didn't get a chance to read all of it. And one of the concerns for folks with IBD was that they were not showing, you know, the appropriate levels of the prevention in their system. There's a better word for it. I'm sure you'll tell me what it is in a second, but that they weren't really showing that there was therapeutic levels of of actually being preventative for them. What did you see for kids? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So in the the prevent COVID study, which is the the study about uh, COVID vaccines in, in people with inflammatory bowel disease, and this was a large study with lots of centers in, involved. And, and we, us at the University of Michigan, were just one of a, a large number of centers. And I was not the leader of the whole thing, although I was very happy to, to help with it. And what we found by and large is that the vaccines really did work. If you look at the, the rates of antibody development in people on the various different medicines we use uh, with inflammatory bowel disease, I forget the exact number. It was like 97% or so developed antibodies as a response to the vaccine, which is really encouraging. That's There are some other medicines that we rarely use in IBD that are used, they suppress different parts of the immune system. They're used by other subspecialists where they they found, because there were parallel studies about pathology and liver disease and other things. And some with with some of the other medicines, they had a lesser response to the vaccine. But in IBD, for the most part, actually, it was pretty, pretty darn good. There was a related study, which was not the vaccine study. It was an international effort led by Dr. Michael Kaplan from pediatric GI and Dr. Millie Long from adult GI, both from UNC actually looking at the outcomes of the COVID infection itself. And this was a, an international effort, but, you know, physicians from around the globe reporting. And, and the nice thing to see is that most of the medicines we use in IBD with the predictable exception of steroids really uh, were not associated with bad outcomes of COVID, which is really nice to see. That is really nice to see as someone living with IBD on these medications and having had many, many vaccines and primary series and so many boosters. I I've lost count of the number of boosters that I've had. I kind of want to just go in a different direction and back a little bit. One of the things that we found when we were doing a little digging about you is that you're passionate about reducing health disparities. Is that something that you're finding more of in the IBD world or is that also a spillover from your primary pediatric world? Oh, that's an interesting question. I I think it goes all the way back to my early education. It's been an interest of mine. There definitely are disparities in the IBD world. Uh, We see it in a number of studies. We can talk a little bit about why that might be and certainly about the implications of it. But going back in my general pediatrics life, I I worked in New York. I trained in Boston at Boston City Hospital, then renamed Boston Medical Center, where we were the urban hospital where a lot of the disparities sort of manifest. And and we could talk about this, you know, equity in all aspects of society. There are so many things about our society where it could be better, whether it's, you know, education and access to healthcare in the type of insurance we have and the access to the appropriate medication 
medications or timely access to the right medis- medicines. It's everywhere. And it's not just IBD and it's not just GI. But of course, this is the area that I've chosen to make my, uh, you know, home, I suppose. And, uh, and this is the place where I feel I might have some opportunity to help a little bit. But there's lots of lots of disparities. But I don't want to paint a picture of all doom and gloom. There's lots of problems in our society and lots of problems in, in healthcare, but there's also improvements. And there are a lot of people who are trying to improve the situation. And if we, we look over time, outcomes are improved. And, and I think uh, it's thanks to a lot of people and a lot of research to, that, that are working to move the field forward. And those outcomes are improving across the board, even among some of the groups who uh, historically have had less access to care and worse outcomes. I know that was a answer that was all over the place. But. No, it was good. But I am curious, you said there's been some improvements. Where do you see the greatest amount of improvements and where do you think is the next phase of improvement? Like, what do you think is the thing that needs to change the, the most next? Oh, boy. So I think where there are improvements, I, I think the obvious places in the last 25 years since the availability of biologic medicine, starting with infliximab, which is Remicator and Flectra, that was a huge change for IBD care in general, because that was finally a medicine that was really uh, more effective than many of the others and allowed us to stop using steroids or at least use less of them. And so you asked where I see the improvements. Okay. So first I see the improvements in the availability of better medicines. We have more medicines. We have more options. So if this one doesn't work, we now have the option of that. Our healthcare system, which isn't actually a system, it's a bunch of systems, but our healthcare system, which is dependent on health insurance, um, there have been some improvements in insurance. And we think of uh, health insurance as being one of those difficult, non-modifiable things. But since the Affordable Care Act went into place, since we no longer have exceptions that'll block coverage of pre-existing conditions, that's actually made a huge difference for lots and lots of people. There are still plenty of issues with insurance that are, that are problems. But one of the other places where I see big improvements is the healthcare world and GI and pediatric IBD in particular has really embraced quality improvement. And quality improvement is a process of essentially paying attention to details, watching how things go over time, trying to change how you do things to see if you can make it better. And we in the pediatric IBD world have a group called the Improved Care Now Network, which is a wonderful collaboration of, I think, 110 different hospitals and pediatric IBD practices, mostly in the U.S., but in a few other countries. And using quality improvement methods and paying attention to detail over time, we've really seen the processes of care improve. And along with that, we've been seeing some of the outcomes improve as well. So it's a lot of people working together, but I do see improvements. We've had some folks that are active on ICN on the show already. I'm curious if ICN has also tackled health disparities as part of their quality improvements. Is that a specific kind of branch of what they're doing? It is a specific branch of what they're doing. And there's a a working group or a committee. I'm forgetting who's the current lead. It's either Dr. Jennifer Dodson or Dr. Sandy Kim. Both of them have been leads of that committee. They're doing a lot of important work. But the committee is trying to really tackle some of the difficult issues with disparities. But I'd say outside of the committee, the network as a whole has already been working on it. So we worked on the study looking at the patterns of prescribing or the patterns of using. Uh, initially, we looked at steroid use. Over the past, I don't know, Improved Care Now started in 2007. So over the past 12 years, it was published a, a year or two ago. And we looked at the changing use of steroids. And we've seen that we, as a group, have been using steroids less and less and less. And 
that's one of the one of the major efforts that ICN has been focusing on. But within the data, when we look closer, back in the beginning of the of ICN, there were some big disparities who was getting steroids. Steroids were being used more often in African American than in white patients. And what we saw is that those rates of steroid use improved year after year after year. And not only did the total rates of steroid use improve, the disparity got smaller and smaller and smaller. So that in the last couple of years, it's almost the same between white patients and black. So I think, you know, really trying to do the best care for everybody in itself, if you're really careful about it, can help to improve disparities. But that's not enough. There's still plenty of disparities out there. And that's what this committee is trying to work on is all the other blind spots that we're maybe not even aware of. It's encouraging to hear that, that you've already seen an improvement in, in one area, at least, because we know steroids are so harmful long-term for folks. Right. So that paper is already published. The follow-up study, we just presented the results at the Advances in IBD conference, which was looking at the changing use of biologic medicines and the outcomes. And what we found is not at the same time that we're using less steroids, we're using more of the biologic medicines. And over those same years, we're seeing fewer kids develop strictures, fewer kids develop fistulas, fewer kids develop perianal disease. So I think by being smarter and not just being smarter about the medicines that we use, but using effective medicines earlier in the course of the disease, we were not only able to use less steroids, but we're also able to change the course of the disease so that people are having fewer complications, which, which I think is, is wonderful. That's really the direction we need to be going. Okay. Now that people are having better outcomes and your pediatric patients are, you know, seeing, I'm assuming better outcomes means more remission. I'm assuming that's an assumption. One of the things that I have seen and with like families that I've talked to and worked with is that once their child has been in remission for a little while, they want to start taking their child or talk to their doctor about taking the child off of the biologic, which I am not a medical professional and do not have a science degree, but I am immediately saying no no, don't do that. There's a whole bunch of research that really talks about all the things that could happen if you go off the biologic and then try to have to go back on or use a new biologic. So I'm going to stop there and let you talk about that because that is the BISCUIT study, correct? It is the BISCUIT study. The BISCUIT is a, is a funny acronym uh, that stands for Biologic Discontinuation Study. Um, and it's a study that's ongoing, but we already have a lot of uh, data from it. But I want to start actually to answer your question before the BISCUIT study. So Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, is these are chronic diseases. We don't yet have a cure. And as a chronic disease without a cure, if you stop treating it, it comes back. That's just the nature of the disease. And there have now been several studies in adults and now in kids also that have shown just that. If you stop taking a medicine that's working, well, the disease comes back. And the unfortunate thing is sometimes the medicine's less effective if you restart it. So I think there's already prior to the biscuit study reason to believe we shouldn't be stopping. Now, if the therapy's not working, switching to something else makes sense. Um, but if the therapy is working, you're well because it's working and then you want to stay well. So as a gastroenterologist and as a pediatrician, I, I want to help my patients feel well. But I think it's a, especially important during those growing years to keep the disease under control so that kids can grow and develop and everything that they're meant to do. So the biscuit study is specifically looking at uh, trying to understand patterns of discontinuing these medicines and understand who's at risk for discontinuing them, why, and can we do better. And the study wasn't actually focused on the deliberate discontinuing of medicines. The study is focused on, you know, we see kids in practice who have, you know, moved from one medicine to another medicine to another medicine so that, you know, by the time they're even entering adulthood, by the time they're leaving pediatrics to move to adult medicine, they've already been 
going through most of the options and they, they wind up with very few treatment options. And I've always wondered how much of this is because some people just have difficult disease and you have to try a bunch of things before you find the right thing. Or are we really switching medicines for the wrong reasons? Are we doing enough evaluations to figure out, eh, could we salvage this medicine or is it all adverse drug reactions? I don't know. So that was the source of the idea behind the biscuit study is to really just understand the landscape of medicine use and medicine discontinuations and switching. And it's an effort, a collaboration between seven different pediatric IBD programs around the U.S. And we've already found some really interesting things. First of all, there's a lot of switching of medicines. Uh, kids who go on to their second, third, fourth biologic before they even reach the end of their pediatric treatment period. And we have more medicines now than we used to, but we still don't have that many. What we did find is that uh, the reasons for switching, there's a lot of them. Uh, there's a portion of them that are because of drug reactions, which we all understand. Of course, that would be a real reason to switch. But some of them are switching because of reasons that are hard to really understand. There are some patients who we saw a percentage of patients where they, it was a choice to stop this medicine. And maybe that's because of exactly what you had said in the beginning is people, you know, who wants to be on these medicines? Who wants to put their kid on these medicines? The, the answer is nobody, not a parent and not a physician. But the alternative is worse, which is active disease, disease complications, which is why we use them. But anyway, we're seeing a portion of the kids who stop medicines for reasons of the family's choosing. And some of them are stopping the medicines because the insurance company's making them stop, which is really unfortunate and shouldn't happen. And so there's still much that we don't have full answers to yet. But in the process of trying to figure out who does stop the medicines first, who stays on their medicines longer, we found some interesting patterns. And so children who started on mesalamine, aminosalicylates, uh, Crohn's disease who are treated with those medicines first are more likely to then wind up discontinuing their biologics and having worsening of disease. And it's curious that so many kids are actually treated with those medicines since we've known for a long time that they're not very effective at all for Crohn's. But so I don't know the reason as to why, but you know, I, I think it comes back to the previous point of nobody wants to put their kids on these medicines, which we all understand. But if that medicine leads you to worse outcomes and loss of treatment options, that would be a very important piece of information to share with, to be able to share with families. We've also found that in kids who are on these biologics, that if we check the levels of the medicine as you go, the therapeutic drug monitoring, that actually is associated with much better uh, longevity of therapy. People don't stop the medicines as much. And this is actually a real debated issue, especially in the adult world, where there's not such great data to show that once you get the dose right, you really need to keep checking the levels again. But I think pediatrics is different. Kids are growing, their metabolism is changing, their weight is changing, the doses are changing. And it just makes sense that we just need to make sure as they're growing, the level still seems appropriate, stays appropriate. And really, we've now found a really substantial difference. And basically, the more you measure the levels and adjust the drug as kids grow, the better the, the better they do. That's good news, actually. I, I like hearing that. And thank you for clarifying and kind of correcting my assumption there about the purpose of the study and what you were really trying to discover there. I just keep thinking about like a personal experience with the family, and then the kid ended up in the hospital like a year later when they wanted to go off the meds because they had been in remission for so long. So it's heartbreaking. 
heartbreaking, but also, like you said, nobody wants to put their kids on medicine. Follow-up question to you, Dr. Adler. When you were looking at this, it sounds like a lot of the factors you were looking at is things that you have a lot more control over, but I'm curious if there was some information you got from parents around discontinuing the medication for, again, some of those personal reasons, like perhaps maybe the delivery mechanism isn't working for them. Their kids are afraid of needles and it's an infusion or an injection. What were some of the other things you might have looked at there? Yeah, so we we did just a broad search, just trying to collect all the reasons that people stop these medicines. And it was everything you mentioned and then some. There are kids who, of course, have uh, have needle phobias and don't want to have injections or infusions. There were families where they lived far away from the infusion center. So they switched to an injectable medicine instead of an infusion. There were people who had reactions that we don't think of as like major allergic reactions, but yet psoriasis can sometimes get really, really nasty. And if it gets bad and it's not controllable, that's an understandable reason to switch medicines. We saw people switch medicines because of other family issues, other family stressors. And then there were other medical things that came up that weren't necessarily related to the IBD or the medicine themselves, but other health conditions that made it necessary to switch medicines. So the truth is, there's lots of reasons to switch medicines. But sadly, there were some that probably can be avoidable, like the insurance company blocking or delaying things, or the insurance company not allowing using the appropriate dose, so then it doesn't work. So then you wind up switching to another medicine. I think some of these really should be avoided. Well, and even I'm thinking of, do you count a biosimilar, a switch from the originator project to a biosimilar as a switch? Ah, so that's a really good question. So for everything we've talked about so far, I was not considering them to be different. I was considering the Remicade, the original Infliximab, and Inflectra and Remsima to be all one in the same. We are doing a sub-analysis of all the data, specifically looking at biosimilar switching. I don't have results for you yet. Stay tuned, hopefully soon. So as of right now, I was not actually talking about switching to biosimilars. Thank you. I'll look forward to a further conversation with you. How about that? Happy to <laughs> when we have more information for you. Okay. I wanted to get this in our conversation. Day pouches in kids, like determining when to make that decision. Because I feel like a lot of what you're doing is quality improvements and reducing disparities and trying to just raise the bar across the board for all of our patients. So when we get to a point where we have to make that decision, what did you find in your work in you know, making that decision for J-pouches and kids? I think there's a lot there. I think there's a lot to think about. There are times when a colectomy is absolutely necessary and there is really no other option. And there are times when it is considered an elective procedure. And I think one of the things that we found, and other groups have found this too, is that there are quite a few people, quite a few kids who have, after they've had a colectomy, create the J-pouch, that then they develop pouchitis and inflammation of, of the, the J-pouch. And sometimes it's not a terrible problem and it's relatively easy to treat. But some people develop really recurrent pouchitis or persistent pouchitis that doesn't go away. And some people, after all of that, you know, surgery, remove the colon and create the J-pouch and everything else, some of them later on are found to have Crohn's disease. And we found, and other people found remarkably similar statistics. It's about 10% of people with what appears to be UC who have a colectomy and a J-pouch later on down the road are found to have Crohn's disease, which is a substantial number of people. But I think we have to be careful about how we discuss colectomy with 
kids, with families. We all learn in medical school that colectomy is curative for ulcerative colitis. I don't use the language at all. I don't think it's appropriate. When a third of people have persistent or recurrent pouchitis and 10% of them actually wind up having Crohn's later on and wind up back on the same medication. So I don't think we're doing anybody a favor by calling it a colectomy cure. At the same time, sometimes it's absolutely necessary and really it's the right thing to do. And I think sometimes we wait too long and we try more medicines and more medicines and more medicines in the hopes of avoiding surgery. And there's some fairly clear evidence that the longer you delay surgery, actually the more likely you are to have surgical complications. So there is some sort of sweet spot between not waiting too long before having surgery, but also giving a reasonable trial of medicines to see if you can prevent surgery. And I don't know where that sweet spot is, but I think we want to be mindful of that in how we, you know, talk about risks and benefits with families and how we advise families, because you don't want to have surgery unnecessarily, but you also don't want to just lay it if it's really needed. For me, when I'm thinking about kids and having this kind of decision, it's like how much autonomy do they really have, right? How much of the decision is actually up to the pediatric patient and how much of it is really their parent making that decision for them. So yeah, I struggle with that. My kids are adults now, but they both had situations where they had to have colonoscopies, you know, as pediatric patients. And I had to push for that because of my history. And so that was just the tip of the iceberg. I couldn't imagine have had, you know, to have a more serious conversation conversation about something like, you know, making the decision for surgery for them. So I know it's super hard for parents to make that decision. And then imagine making that decision and then your child ends up actually having Crohn's disease. I did hear a surgeon speak at an education program, and this is for professionals, this is not for patients. If they find a J pouch that has chronic pouchitis that you need to start looking at to see if it's Crohn's disease and not just pouchitis. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And sometimes it's actually very hard to sort out, is it actually Crohn's disease or chronic pouch? And so some people use the term Crohn's-like disease of the pouch, which I think is really non-committal. <laughs> but but the, the honest truth is you can't tell in the biopsies, you can't tell in the scope, uh, but it's acting like Crohn's. So I mean, you, you wind up using the same medicines regardless. But I think what you said about families is really very important. I mean, we in pediatrics have you know the privilege of working with families, you know, kids and parents, and, and it's part of our training to deal with that dynamic and actually in some regards to treat the family as a whole. And to try and, you know, help both sides understand to the, the developmental appropriateness of the kid is help them understand what's going on and help the parent understand what's going on and help them find the best path, the best solution. But there isn't always a best solution and there isn't definitely isn't always a right answer. And with the best of technology and the best of intentions and the most thorough of looking, you still can't predict who's going to develop Crohn's. I've looked at patients who had what looked like BUC, who have a colectomy and a J-pouch later on at Crohn's disease, and I went back and, you know, the entire colon specimen that was removed by the surgeons, we've looked at it under the microscope and found no evidence of Crohn's. So it's really hard sometimes to predict who that's going to be. That's one of the other side studies we're working on is can you find a better way of predicting who has Crohn's beforehand? As of right now, there's not a lot of easy answers there. Except, I think, to be transparent and honest about what those risks are. We encourage on the show a lot to find an IBD specialist 
whenever you're in a situation like that, or if you have questions that maybe your community GI or PHGI can't answer, to bring in an IBD specialist, have that second opinion, have that IBD specialist work with your community GI on treatments, and maybe that would help improve outcomes and get these kids to a place where they are in remission and don't have to have all of these complications that you've mentioned, which lead up to surgery. Yeah, I think that's really important. And and in pediatrics, there are fewer community GI docs, more in academic centers. But I recommend to families to go get a second opinion. We are an IBD specialty center. I mean, that's what I do is take care of kids with IBD and complicated issues. But, you know, if there's uncertainty, if the family's really struggling, I think it's always a good idea to get another opinion. But another opinion from an IBD specialist, because, you know, one, it oftentimes gives another set of eyes looking at the kid and, and maybe gives reassurance that this is the right thing to do. And, and on occasion, somebody comes up with some other idea. So I don't think it's a bad idea at all. Totally agree. Totally agree. I'm, I'm curious. So one of the things we talked about is preventative care. And one of the studies that I know I found for you was talking about predicting perianal fistulas in kids. So tell us about that study. What did you find? Is there is there a way to predict this? Well, as with everything in medicine, <laughs> nothing is absolute. But we've now done a few different studies to, one, understand who is at risk of developing perianal fistulas. But two, can we actually predict these things? Because as you all know, perianal fistulas can be really difficult to treat and they often come back. So wouldn't it be great if we can prevent them from happening in the first place? And what we found is that there are some situations in which kids are at a higher risk of developing perianal fistulas. So for example, if if somebody has uh, skin tanks or fissures, deep anal fissures or inflamed skin tanks, that's associated with actually really increased risk of developing fistulas. Those are people who have skin tanks but don't yet have fistulas. We did MRIs to make sure there wasn't even like a hidden fistula there and found that they're actually at a really big risk of developing fistulas. There have been a number of studies that have shown racial differences or disparities in a greater risk of developing perianal fistulas among African-Americans and Asian patients and Hispanic patients as well. There's an increased risk of developing perianal fistulas if you have granulomas and so in the biopsies of the intestine of Crohn's disease, there's a little cluster of cells you sometimes see called a granuloma. In the textbooks, that's like the key feature of Crohn's disease. But the truth is like only 40 or maybe 50% of people with Crohn's have those granulomas. But if you have them, there's an actually a higher risk of developing fistulas, perianal fistulas. And it's actually more common in children than in adults, but within pediatrics, more common in adolescents than younger kids. So there's a little hints here and there about who might be at a greater risk of developing perianal fistulas. But I Nobody could tell you, like, this person will and this person won't develop perianal fistulas. But, you know, all of that information together, I think, is useful, at least to help us start to think of who do we need to be, you know, working on trying to prevent fistulas. And and the nice thing that we found is that, and it makes sense, the sooner you get the disease under control, the more likely you are to prevent the the fistulas. And in people with those granulomas, the the cluster of cells in the biopsies, they specifically seem to do better on anti-TNF medicine like infliximab, remicade, inflectorate, adalimumab, humira, medicines like that. And we found that early use of those medicines in those patients, you wind up with uh, fewer kids developing perianal fistulas. So we saw this in patients at University of Michigan, and we've seen this when we looked at large-scale national data also, that you know, early use of more effective therapies really does seem to prevent fistulas, at least for a good number of people. 
And then there was one study where we did, which I thought was really interesting, is not only does early use of more effective therapies reduce the risk of developing fistulas, but if you develop a fistula, it's less likely to be one of the more complex ones if you're on those medicines. So I think all of these studies are pieces of the larger puzzle that all are pointing in the same direction of the sooner we get things under control, the better the outcomes. And it looks like we really can prevent some of these complications. So it sounds like giving you a fictional patient, if you had an African-American teenage girl that walked in the door who had granulomas in her biopsies, you'd be like, ding, 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 you get Humira. Well, I, I, I would certainly lean more towards some one medicine in that family, whether it's Humira or Remicade Inflector, one of those as the first line therapy. Absolutely. But this gets at one of the other questions you were asking about earlier is the disparity. So we know that there are a higher rate of fistulas among African-Americans compared to everybody else. But the question is, why? There's all kinds of evidence that there are disparities in access to care. There are delays in diagnosis. And some communities and groups are that the disease then is more aggressive at the time of diagnosis. And we know that there are disparities in access of care by race, by income, by health insurance. So is it that African-American kids are inherently more likely to develop fistulas? Or is it really actually the socioeconomic status and access to care and delayed diagnosis? I'm not sure it's a straightforward answer. I think there's a lot of assumptions that some people have more aggressive disease than others, but maybe it's just simply that that disease took longer to get diagnosed. Therefore, it was untreated for longer. Therefore, it was worse by the time it was diagnosed. I think we still have a lot to learn. But what is clear is that the sooner you figure out the disease, the sooner you get it treated, the better people do. I'd be curious to track the health insurance status of all of these kids. And like you said, some of the socioeconomic factors that go into it, because certainly every African-American child is not in a low socioeconomic status. So what do those kids look like versus what are the kids with, you know, high access to health insurance and blah, blah, blah. What does that look like for both of them? Curious. Yeah, exactly. And there's been some interesting studies that have shown that African-American and white and Hispanic and Latino patients are not treated differently, that there are no disparities in terms of the treatments. But if you dig deeper into the data, and if you look at not just race, but race and income, you actually start to see where those disparities lie. And the disparities by income are greater among African-Americans than the disparities by income among white Americans. So I, I, I think there's a lot that we really need to do to improve access to care. I think that's a, that's a, that remains a big problem for many families. It's so multi-layered. So yeah, this is a difficult thing to research, but I'm glad there's people like you doing it. Well, thank you. I think it's really important. And it's not just me. There's lots of people who care and lots of people are, are, are working on this. And we really need to all work on it because there's a, a lot that needs to be improved. I feel like Alicia and I could ask you questions for at least another hour, but it is time for me to ask you our last question, which is what is the one thing you would like? So we could go either way for you. You could say, what is the one thing you want other medical professionals to know? Or what is the one thing that you want your patients and families to know? I think they're one and the same. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but I think these are chronic diseases that are really difficult, especially when they get out of control. They're so hard to treat. I think the sooner we diagnose IBD and the sooner we get people treated with effective therapies, the better the outcomes. And I think that's important for families to know. I think it's important for the referring primary care emergency room docs to know. And I think it's important for the gastroenterologist to know is, is time matters. And if we drag our feet or if there's delays in people getting in or if the insurance companies are blocking 
you know, standard of care, the outcomes are worse. And so I think it's important at all levels for people to recognize that the, you know, we can make a difference, but we need to treat people well and treat and do it in a timely way. Very true. I'm, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. I'm sorry, because I can't help myself. <laughs> so, you know, Robin mentioned uh, general practice GIs, and, and you mentioned that it's perhaps a little less prevalent in the pediatric community. But I'm curious, do you see those folks that do just sort of general practice gastroenterology for kids holding on to their patients longer than perhaps they should? Or are they pretty good about passing them on to the specialists? I don't know. That's a really good question. And I, so I don't feel like in, at least in my experience, and I don't know if this is specific to Michigan or specific to pediatrics, I don't see the divide between the sort of community GI docs and academic GI docs the way it is in the adult world, just because most people are academic. But I do see that there are some academic centers and some academic docs that focus more on IBD than others. And I think the people who focus a lot on IBD are more up to date and are really on top of things more. And I think that's probably true everywhere as experience matters. The more you do something, the better you get at it. And I, I think like I'm not a hepatologist. I'm not a liver doctor. If I see a kid with a liver disease, I'm going to send them to the hepatologist and I hope it goes the other way as well. It does. Um, but uh, so I, I think, you know, all of us should be aware of our limitations and, and, and focus on our strengths. But I, I do see kids who come in for a second, third, fourth opinion who have been treated in ways that are not uh, current standards of care. And so I, I think we all, you know, maybe could use reminders once in a while to really stay up to date. And, and if something is outside of our comfort zone is uh, reach out to a specialist who really that is what they focus on. Also good advice. Thank you for letting me harass you with another question. Dr. Dr. Adler, it was such a pleasure to have you on. It was really nice to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Really was a joy to listen to you. And thank you everyone else for joining us for Bowel Moments. So we're going to end by saying cheers. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the invitation and cheers. Hi, this is Dr. Jeremy Adler. If you like this episode, please rate it, review it, subscribe, and share.